0: What must it be like to sit on the edge of Saturn's rings, bundled up in a cozy space onesie, whilst dangling one's stems over the side of a dusty boulder, held in place only by planetary gravity and the diligent care of a shepherd moon? A shepherd moon's role is to keep things in place, maintaining order and beauty and wholeness by generating emptiness a celestial body devoted in purpose and form to constantly reinforcing a necessary absence. And without that band of nothing, Saturn's rings would surely not be as magical to behold. So how do we come to terms with embracing our absences? How do we find enough distance to see that the losses we endure shape us and contribute To how brightly we burn in our own night sky, can we in emptiness find fullness? What is the dark matter and dark energies that fuel us or propel us forward? Are we expanding or contracting or both? Friends... I'm starting to think those gummy hearts that Carrie and Dita put out at our Feast of St. Valentine's party may have had a little more than sugar in them, as my hands are vibrating and I can hear the color blue. Is this Saturn or am I on top of a shed? I better use my goat horn to call out a signal to Galinda to come find me and get some water in me so that I can realign myself and join you in the Deep Night. To the deep night, we find the, the question on the other side. The oh, French, hello, it's me. Del Shiva I'm so pleased to be your thankfully clear-headed host, guide, and guru through this next hour of regrets and revelations we call the Deep Night. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. And fun fact about the Gowanus, uh, it does not reflect light, so don't go looking for stars in there. It absorbs light on account of how dense it is with sex disease and heavy metals— If a new universe were to form, oh, it would likely spring forth from the turgid depths of the Gowanus. But as we await the arrival of the big blob, we make the most of these strange days of winter, don't we? Is it warm or is it snowing? Who knows? We are all things, all at once, all the time. Fellow denizens of the deep, you know I love a good grok about space and our place in the universe and or multiverse, and so I was thrilled to spin a few ideas around the axis with astrophysicist and folklorist Dr. Moya McTeer. Moya is so sharp and so full of knowledge and, most importantly, remains exceedingly curious about how we got here, how we relate to one another, how nature shapes us, how we shape each other. And as I continue to grapple with recent loss and grief, it occurs to me during this conversation that so much of our myth-making as a species comes from an inability to comprehend and or deal with death. We invent underworlds and afterlives and angels and spirits, and to imagine how lives are built, as Moya does on her podcast Exolore, one has to contend with how lives end, and the storytelling and the rituals that come with that. So here's the real-deal bio for my guest. Dr. Moya McTeer is an astrophysicist, folklorist, and science communicator based in New York City. After graduating from Harvard as the first person in the school's history to study both astronomy and mythology, Moya earned her Ph.D. in astrophysics at Columbia University, where she was selected as a National Science Foundation Research Fellow. Moya has consulted with companies like Disney and PBS on their fictional worlds, helped design exhibits for the New York Hall of Science, and given hundreds of talks about science around the globe, including features on MSNBC, NPR, and This News. Moya has a new book out this August from Grand Central Publishing, available for pre-order now, entitled... The Milky Way, an autobiography of our galaxy. Friends, this is a wonderful talk. You're in for a treat when we tune into my conversation with Dr. Moya McTeer. Dr. Moya McTeer, welcome to the deep night.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Dale.
0: Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm so glad to welcome you to our little turtleneck dimension, uh, where time <laughs> and space make a nice little fold <laughs> and keep the neck warm.
1: Oh, that sounds lovely. I wish that in physics there was more stuff that kept necks warm.
0: Right? Right. Uh, <laughs> think that's probably why I wasn't uh let's say I didn't excel in physics <laughs> <laughs> because I was too interested in warm necks and uh sitting around with a cold neck is never good for that because that's where all the thoughts you know mm-hmm. they got to go up and down right it's the, mm-hmm. it's the don't
1: passageway don't want to block the passageway with too much cold <laughs>
0: this is what I'm talking about well <laughs> I could not be more intrigued. Uh, doctor, by your journey, your work, your areas of expertise, and am I correct in that all of this really took root for you growing up in a log cabin in a dying coal town in Pennsylvania?
1: Oh yes, you are correct. Unfortunately.
0: <laughs> oh, wow, uh, that's see. I grew up in Pennsylvania too, mm. and uh, and and nothing against it, lovely place. Um, but even some of the uh, towns that weren't, uh, you know, fueled by coal. Uh, <laughs> Can seem a little bleak, uh, as if time has stopped. Was that the case where you <laughs> you were growing up? Was it just kind of a frozen moment? What was happening there?
1: Yeah, I think in a lot of ways it felt like I was growing up in times that were not the early two thousands. Um, it culturally was kind of stuck in I don't know maybe the fifties or sixties. There were people in my town who still flew Confederate flags. Uh, that's not a lie. And yes. uh, In a more micro scale, the house that I lived in, that log cabin, didn't have running water. Um, So my chores were going out and pumping water from the underground well and chopping firewood so that we could heat that water on our wood-burning stove. And in that way, it was kind of like living in the 1800s.
0: But now was this a, uh, a, a back to the land choice? Was this uh, something that was inherited? Was the log cabin indeed a time traveling device that uh, <laughs> emerged from another period? How do you find yourself so recently uh, in that condition?
1: Yes, uh, love, love. Uh, yes, the the grand force that moves the entire universe. Um, yes. Maybe that's what dark energy is. Um, no, oh. it was it was love. My my mom fell in love with a man that she met. Uh, where she was teaching at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. And he is an old hippie from California. Um, he doesn't like people. He loves silence and the woods. So he bought this house that had a a, a working plumbing system, I think, and it either went into disrepair or he tore it out. Um, didn't have a toilet. I actually just recently learned this while I was talking to my mom, that in their early courtship phases she was going to visit him and she refused to visit him if he didn't have a toilet which I think is totally reasonable yes so he bought a composting toilet and that's what I grew up with wow Hmm, yes
0: (laughs) that's always the choice on the you watch the tiny house hunters and the the one of the couple is always very excited about that compostable toilet (laughs) and the other person not so sure (laughs) <laughs> and i <laughs> no. I think that's a real test of a of a relationship, so uh, amazing that everybody uh, made it mm-hmm. um yeah that's wow that's see that love it
1: <laughs> is yes. powerful yeah i I used to work at a Girl Scout camp, and we had many songs that we would sing to make the work go faster and one of the songs was about how love ultimately was the force that makes the world go round um but but even higher than that. If you trace love back down to its root, it's cheese that makes the world go round.
0: <laughs> this is according to the doctrine of the Girl Scouts or this is yes. what you discovered? Okay.
1: Yes, according to the doctrine of the Girl Scouts, cheese <laughs> leads to love, which makes the world go round. Gosh,
0: that's lovely. Misguided but lovely. <laughs>
1: like so much of the Girl Scouts. <laughs>
0: yes, well, as a, as a Boy Scout, uh, we had our share of that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of uh, tough moments in the woods. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> but now, how dark were the night skies when you were growing up out there in the, in the log cabin?
1: Mm, they were probably pretty dark, but I didn't pay any attention to them. I really? didn't care at all about space until I got to college. And then when I found astronomy as a sophomore in college, it was more about the data and more about the numbers and the equations that I could run to manipulate and, and do, calculate different cool aspects of the universe. And it was never about how it looks in the sky.
0: Really? So uh, in that instance, do you find that uh, instead of cheese, it was math that was holding everything <laughs> together?
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Have you seen those memes of different sciences that go on an axis of purity and it's like biology on the left and then and then chemistry and then physics? Uh, as you go- move to the right, it gets more and more pure. Apparently, I'm using air quotes yes. for the audio people. And uh <laughs> Physicists think that they're the most pure science, and then the mathematicians are all the way on the right, and they're like, ha you fools. <laughs> Everything is math.
0: <laughs> but you weren't attracted to the visual piece of it at all. I'm curious about that. It really I... only made sense for you once you got in terms of the, the nitty-gritty of this number goes with this number, and then it can be split infinitely into some other number or <laughs> code.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know it's not as romantic sounding, but yeah, it's the truth. I mean, I thought it was pretty. Um, I I did. I am a scientist, but I also have a part of my brain that's very uh, fantastical and and loves to think about magic. And so I was very into the celestial aesthetic of oh the the moon and its multiple phases and the power that that holds, kind of in like a a witchy pagan way. Yes, but. You know, and I still can only identify a single constellation. It's Orion. Um, If you ask me to find the Big Dipper, I am totally useless. So, yeah, it's all about the data. (laughs) Well,
0: Orion's a good one. And that's kind of, uh, that's my constellation, too, because you can always tell when those three are in a row Mm -hmm. for the belt. And uh, I remember my mother pointing it out, and I always look for it. And you can usually find it. (laughs)
1: Yes. Um, So some, some science behind when you can and can't find it is that the constellations are only visible in the sky for about six months out of the year because otherwise they're on the other side of the sun from our point of view. And so Orion is visible in the winter months. It comes up around uh, maybe November and is like high in the sky around January or February. So I've always uh, thought of it as my constellation as well, because that's when I was born. So I felt like Orion was looking over me. And then he he dips below the horizon and like April-ish.
0: Oh, see, that's it's, it's It can all be explained. Can it? <laughs> uh, I have a hard time anytime I start thinking about uh, stars, space. Uh, I get a little bit uh, wonky uh, mm-hmm. because it's true we're all hurtling through, right? There's a there, we're in motion, and I think oh, so yeah. often we look at the static solar system. Here we are. We want that place. We want that constellation. Is always going to be here. But I mean, am I correct that a, yes. a, a star is 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 light that we're seeing uh, through time?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, these stars are giving off light or photons. Those are the particles that, that light exists in. And it takes those photons time to travel. So by the time they get here, time has passed. And we're actually looking at stars as they were many, many years ago. Um, you know, if a star is four light years away, like uh, Alpha Centauri, then it will take light four years for, for it to get to us.
0: Man, see, and, and all the while, we're also still moving. So uh, yes. we're moving at a rate that is consistent with the photons approaching.
1: Um, no, so they're actually quite separate. the The speed of light and then the speed at which we're moving through the universe. And we're moving in a lot of different ways, Dale. Oh so gosh, our Our Earth <laughs> is yeah. rotating around the sun, going yes. very quickly. I. At some, I could do the math to figure out the numbers, but I'm not going to try and do that here. I that would be a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're moving around the sun. The yeah. sun itself is moving around the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy is moving around the local group. In fact, the Andromeda galaxy and the Milky Way are careening towards each other, I think, at like 100 kilometers per second or something. Something really fast.
0: What's going to happen then?
1: Well, in about (laughs) five billion years, they will start to collide. Um, A very popular exercise for young, burgeoning astronomers is to do a calculation to see how many stars will collide when Andromeda and the Milky Way do. And it is like five. Um, Each of these galaxies holds about a trillion stars, maybe, and only a handful of them won't actually touch because space is so big.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing we forget, isn't it? It's hard mm-hmm. for us to get our minds around it. Um, and, and one more. This is the most basic question. <laughs> and I apologize. No, I but love it. You, These are my favorite. If you got close to a star,
1: mm-hmm. what are we looking at? Uh, <laughs> like
0: a, a, a shiny rock? <laughs> oh,
1: yes, yes. So so stars are big balls of gas that okay. get so tightly compressed that the temperature and the pressure get strong enough to make nuclear fusion happen. And there are different masses of stars that have different temperatures and pressures associated with them. Um, Our star, our sun is pretty average, but if you were, if you were looking at them um, one, one interesting thing is that our sun looks yellow in the sky when you look at it, but it's actually all wavelengths of light. So if you were to leave our atmosphere and, uh, somehow develop eyes that could stare directly at the sun you would see it as a white ball of light um, it's not some people call it like a ball of fire it's not exactly the same thing as fire um, it's not that the star is is burning it's that it's fusing in its core
0: a tangle of energy and mm-hmm. uh, processes Constantly happening, feeding one another, producing energy, producing light, producing warmth, and all the other things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what my physics book said. That it was a tango of energy.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Good. They recently released a a new image of the Milky Way with all the di- different spectrum of some kind, mm. uh, uh, and they had the and that that scares me because I uh, I'm concerned that if we just you know turn up the red spectrometer or uh, we're only looking at microwaves that at some point we're going to see like the eyes of a giant space worm just uh, circling the moon or something. That that stuff makes me, I'm scared by the things we can't see.
1: Hmm. I wish that that would happen, actually. Uh, so I, I will say you're totally not alone in being scared about the vastness and the kind of unknowableness of the universe. Lots of people feel that. There are even some astronomers who feel that way, and they cope with it by trying to understand as much as they can about space. Um, But I think that you can rest assured, knowing that we have looked at most of the wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum. We can see the, the tiny, tiny uh, gamma rays that, you know, have wavelengths less than micrometers, and we can see the giant radio waves that have wavelengths uh, of 100 meters. We can see across this entire spectrum, and to my knowledge, uh, we have not seen any giant snake eyes okay. around the moon.
0: That does make me feel better.
1: Good. <laughs> <laughs> and and another thing that, that I often hear is um people thinking that maybe astronomers are just keeping it a secret, that yeah. maybe we've found aliens or we've found these snake eyes. We can't keep secrets. Yeah. We are a bunch of can I swear? Sure. We're yeah. a bunch of gossiping bitches, astronomers <laughs> are. We love to tell our secrets. So um we're not hiding anything from you.
0: <laughs> no, I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, that's I I know people too well that if something <laughs> like that really were Uh, to be out there. Somebody would want to take credit for it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an automatic Nobel Prize if you find aliens. No (laughs) one's keeping that a secret.
0: That's right. That's right. Well, I wonder, and we're going to bring maybe some of this all together, but um, do you recall your first visit to a planetarium? Was that much later in in life then?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was much later. It was after I was already doing astronomy research. And I think maybe my first time in a planetarium may have been when I was giving a talk in a planetarium. Hmm. Yeah. um, And was there
0: the stars behind you or were you? (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, my presentation, my slides were behind me.
0: (laughs) On the big dome?
1: Yeah, it was actually really cool. It was in a a small planetarium in Ohio, one of the oldest planetariums in the country. And they had these seats that reclined so you could uh, not strain your neck as you were looking up at the ceiling. And it was cool to see my slides on this like spherical... Uh, screen, um, yeah, that—that that I think was the first time.
0: Yes, uh, that's interesting because my—I uh, f- remember one of my first times, if not the first time, was coming into the city and watching a laser light show set to the Beatles <gasps> <Yes>. and. <laughs> Not the stars necessarily, but these squiggly fast lines of lasers being drawn mm-hmm. like a flashlight, you know, when you would swing it around at night or something. And to this day, I can't listen to Lucy in the Sky uh, with diamonds without picturing this very silly drawing <laughs> <laughs> that was done in lasers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> its uh, you just never know what's going to stick with you. And uh, you, are, there's a lot about... Um, Storytelling within that, and mm-hmm. there's something about the unknowing uh, the unknowableness, the seeming unknowableness, the mm-hmm. vastness of the space that leads us to create stories around it, isn't it and and yeah. I, I'm wondering because I've been inviting guests to share some ideas around loss and our proximity to it, um whether that's a close call we've had with uh, 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 Life-ending situation or uh, Mm -hmm. perhaps we've been we've lost somebody and that's kind of resulted in a change in our reality like you You're necessarily having to um, Get past escape velocity and you enter a new realm uh, Mm -hmm. of being without someone or like crash landing on a different planet Where suddenly things are rearranged you understand? (laughs) so uh, (laughs) I wondered in addition to just the vastness of it and trying to make sense of that, how much of space uh, 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 and myth and building cultures, um, the, how much of that is actually related to just trying to understand death?
1: Ooh. So my personal belief about mythology and storytelling and how it evolved into, into the scientific method that we have today is that it's all about understanding, Most of it is about understanding. Some of it is also about entertainment um, and teaching. But I feel like people made myths about how the universe was created or uh, why we have thunder or why we have seasons because they saw this stuff happening around them and they wanted to explain it. And they didn't have beakers or um, scanning electron microscopes. So they thought of gods and, and mythological creatures who manipulated the environment to their will. Um, A sub part of that is understanding death. And that's a really important stage for human development. If you look back at our evolutionary history, uh, we didn't always understand the concept of death first we had to you know develop the parts of our brains that were capable of abstract thought and uh you know it's like when you when you see a baby and they don't have that thing where if they look away they still know you're there like humans had to had to learn that just like babies have to learn that and uh a lot of the myths that we tell about the afterlife were trying to explain what would happen trying to explain why people would stop using their bodies and stop breathing, Um, trying to also comfort ourselves because loss and death, they're really scary, especially if you don't understand the, you know, electrical impulses that travel through our bodies and make them work the way that we're used to. And um, yeah, I see I see a lot of comfort and a lot of explanation in death myths and uh yeah i I myself am more comforted when i understand something when i have a reason for it so they did that they gave themselves a reason
0: right can we pinpoint uh, historically or prehistorically when the idea of an afterlife came into uh, being or circulation
1: i wouldn't say pinpoint but i think we could you know like like take a a fist and and punch it you know like there's (laughs) a, a broad region yeah Uh, I actually talk about this a bit in my book, uh, which is an autobiography of the Milky Way. And when archaeologists look back at burial practices and um, other other rituals surrounding death, they can trace this story out. And I think that it's somewhere around like 50,000 years ago that we think our burial practices got more elaborate instead of just leaving a body in a ditch so that animals don't come to your little settlement, um, we started leaving things with those bodies or decorating the bodies in a specific way. You know, think of the Egyptians and mummification, or we would um, develop specific prayers that we would say over the bodies. And we can see that because eventually they started writing those prayers down. So we have been caring about death and the afterlife for for many years tens of thousands of years.
0: And is there anything uh, to the idea that once you introduce the concept of afterlife, um, that there's also, well, it's a slippery slope, Is <laughs> that, mm. that then there also becomes uh, I- ideas of power uh, that <gasps> yes. are then in, enforced and imposed in that. Um, and, and it gets quite complicated quite quick, doesn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the afterlife is there to comfort but also in a way to control imagine the the people the religious elites the people for who for a long time had most of the power because they were you know the the divine connection between between earth and and god or gods whatever the the culture believed in and once you have an afterlife that is in some way attached to your moral uh achievements here on earth then you can use it as a as a stick or a carrot, like be be good, follow my rules and my laws, and then you'll get into this good place forever. Or if you're bad, if I don't like how you act, then you will go to hell, or, or whatever the equivalent of that is, and not all cultures had the equivalent. Um, but it's really interesting when you take this one step further from afterlife myths to doomsday myths, uh. and this is another thing I talk about in my book, um, Afterlife myths are about your own moral achievements. If you as a person are bad, then you'll go to a bad place. But doomsday myths are about everyone's moral achievements. If as a society you misbehave, then you're going to bring about the apocalypse because God will get angry with you and want to punish you. Um, So I, I love mythology because it has this beautiful way of connecting us to the beliefs and the fears and the hopes and dreams of of our ancestors. Um, But there's a lot of shady stuff in there, too.
0: (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yes. And once another group doesn't agree with the other group and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And and we find ourselves in the situation we're in now, Um, (sighs) which also makes me wonder, how would things change if uh, lifespan were not an issue?
1: You mean if we were immortal?
0: If we were immortal or lived much longer lifetime, but let's go with immortal because how does mm-hmm. that really realign things? And if you remove the having to even think about the concept of afterlife or death, mm. where do we end
1: up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love this question. Um, you see this question being reckoned with a lot in vampire lore for example because vampires are immortal and they're usually painted as tortured souls and when you dig deep into it it's usually that they're tortured because they lose the people around them who matter but that's because they're immortal and their loved ones aren't so i think if we had a world where everyone was immortal then Oh, there would be good things and bad things. Um, I think that we would develop a lot more empathy. I think we would be able to advance a lot faster as a society. Because think about it. When like when Newton died, uh, someone else had to take up his work. And, and there was definitely a disruption. If a single conscious being could focus on their interests for uh, an immortal lifespan, then they would be able to get a lot more done. But we would also have a lot more issues with, you know, resource management. Um, would, we would have to make up rules around whether or not you can have kids. Uh, yes. We've already seen this in parts of the world, even though we're not immortal. And and I think that would lead to a lot of conflict. There's also, you know, are you talking about immortal where you can still die if you're injured? Or are you totally immortal and like a god and you can't die at all? Or Like a vampire, can you only die if you get a very specific type of injury? Um,
0: A wooden stake or garlic or holy water.
1: Um, These are the types of of, um, features of an immortal world that would lead to different outcomes um, yes. this is the type of thinking i i love to do when i'm building a world
0: yes which you do on your podcast uh, uh explore it at least uh, uh, on exo yeah. lore uh mm-hmm. is the podcast which I, I think is just my dream scenario of a podcast <laughs> because you really get to entertain all these ideas uh silly or not uh mm-hmm. and most of the time they'd still prompt serious investigation <laughs> I, I, I i love that um oh, thank you because you also have such a i mean you are rooted in astrophysics as well as folklore and myth mm-hmm. and uh, it's such a fascinating combination um and you you do try to sort of game out what would happen on different kind of planets in these mm-hmm. uh, uh things that are out there <clears throat> exoplanets i guess um which reminds me, I had a good conversation with Mike Brown once, the guy that you know Ooh, uh, took Pluto the guy who down. Killed Pluto, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> lovely guy. Uh, <laughs> these are all about the exoplanets and discovering them. How many of those do you think would be Earth two or Earth three?
1: Hmm. Well, in our galaxy alone, in the Milky Way, there are hundreds of billions of stars. We think that on average, there are a couple planets per star. Uh, so many hundreds of billions of planets. Most of them we've found are what we call super Earths. They're they're between the size of Earth and Neptune. Uh, maybe they're rocky, but they're probably going to be gas planets like the ones further out in our solar system. So uh, not many of them are going to be, well, I mean, relatively speaking, not many of them are going to be Earth 2.0. Absolutely speaking, because there are hundreds of billions of them, there will be thousands maybe even millions of planets that are quite similar to earth but they're super freaking far away um i i really like to push back on on imaginings of earth 2.0 because uh earth 2.0 we can't reach it (laughs) uh so it might as well not even exist unless you're trying to study its atmosphere for science that's that's the only thing earth 2.0 is good for right
0: and it seems like we'd ruin it.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean chances, I are hope, <laughs> chances are pretty good. Chances are pretty good. I would hope that if we got to the point where we actually could reach Earth 2.0, that we would have evolved, not like biologically evolved, but culturally evolved as a society to the point where we understand how to interact with an environment without extracting resources or without bleeding it dry. And honestly, there are humans who have been able to interact with Earth that way. Uh, Indigenous cultures around the world would steward their land and would care for the land without just extracting everything they could get from it. Um, So I would hope that we would take that attitude to Earth 2.0 if we could get there.
0: That would be nice. (laughs) I'm wearing
1: my optimist hat today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because when I think about what's happening, even with the ideas for Mars, you just think, come on, Mm -hmm. come on. Why are we we messing with it? That's also not militarized space. Mm -hmm. Just stop with this. uh, Leave it for discovery and exploration. But anyhow, um, let me go back to the folklore idea just quickly, (laughs) because I have an idea that I want to run by you when it comes to the development of... Language And perhaps this is already something that's been well studied and you can say, well, go to this paper because they already did this. But (laughs) is is language uh, or is it possible that language is determined uh, by geography Mm. and uh, not just the physiological way that we're constructed? Obviously, that makes certain sounds. But if you live in a place um, that is maybe very dense. There, the language would have short staccato kind of sounds that you have to get mm. quickly to the next to the person that's over there or, or if you are in a river valley, the sounds might be more uh mell- mellifluous and uh you know uh, uh, spread out and mm. might be more connected might be more romantic let's say um is there anything to that could that be possible?
1: It could be possible for sure, but I don't think it would be the the ultimate determining factor in how your language sounds or how it evolves. Um, it's very possible that cultures would take inspiration from from their surroundings. Um, we see that in in folklore, a lot of of gods and and other religious figures are reflections of the natural world around us there are sun gods and river gods and tree gods you know um they reflect nature and so if you worship a a specific god you might want to emulate it in a way you might want to take on some of its characteristics and so i can definitely imagine a scenario where someone uh, or a society worships a river spirit and so they want to take on more of its traits and be more flowy and be be more relaxed and um I can imagine that, but uh, it probably wouldn't drastically change the course of their linguistic evolution. An- another way that your surroundings might inspire or or influence your language are you tend to make words or or have concepts for what you see regularly. Um, for example, uh, one one that I've heard a lot is that the Inuit people uh, have many 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 words for snow because they're surrounded by snow and they are intimately familiar with the different types of snow that you can have um i am not that familiar i know that there's that there's icy snow and there's powdery snow and i know that you want to you want to skate on the powdery snow um or snowboard on the powdery snow but they because they're living in it have a lot more little gradations of the types of snow and ice and cold um so yeah that you're at environment can absolutely influence your your language and the way that you use it but probably not as much as you know your your biology and your your biological needs and uh the the past you know linguists have tried to trace the evolution of languages trying to come up with with the the one great first language maybe there there isn't one um but yeah It's connected, for
0: sure. Yes. I mean, I just think if you have a word, even like river, well, river, Mm -hmm. you know, it moves. And if you're Mm. trying to describe the world around you, you need words that kind of mimic or sound or uh, honor those things that you see. And perhaps that could feed in. But I get your point. (laughs) <laughs> I know there may be a limit to that. Uh, well, so.
1: this this is why I really love world building on exoplanets, on, on environments that are drastically different from Earth, because then you can take these thought experiments to the extreme. Um, you mentioned a dense environment, and, and I translated that in my mind as a very dense atmosphere. Um, I actually just recorded an episode of Exolore on a world with a very thick atmosphere, and we talked about how they would use their language um, because on a thick atmosphere the sound would travel faster and farther it would sound louder so we we asked oh would people try to conserve their sound because it might be disrespectful to make much noise in Aww. this kind of oppressive environment or would they be very chatty um, would they would they use the fact that sound can travel faster and farther for for different purposes and i i love thinking about that and when you take extreme environments like exoplanets, you actually can have fun with those experiments.
0: Absolutely. And is there something that you return to as a starting point each time, a sort of control with all the variables? You always like to say, okay, well, it, it's in this kind of atmosphere, or it's mm-hmm. this kind of, uh, it's a kind of land uh, formation that has to be present, or there has to be water. I mean, do you always come back? Is there one thing that you like to start with?
1: Uh, The one assumption that I make in all of my episodes is that there is life and it evolves to intelligence and sentience and eventually even like rises to the top of its food chain and reaches self-actualization on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But from the environment, I usually try to say, imagine it's exactly like Earth, except for insert difference here like it's exactly like earth but it orbits two suns or it's exactly like earth but um its atmosphere has more carbon dioxide in it and sometimes i do have to deviate that a little bit but i find that it helps my guests root themselves in something that feels more familiar if i'm like all right uh throw everything you know out the window then i have to build the entire planet from scratch so i i start with earth as a base usually and then deviate from there
0: yeah that that makes sense um i do think it would be pretty great to discover a diamond planet though oh yeah with a ruler that's like jajaja gabor which <laughs> is such a good space name anyway um, and maybe they're always at war with the scoundrels of cubic mm. zirconia <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. Those those um, (laughs) pretenders, those heathens.
0: That's right. Um, Well, there is something to uh, science fiction about the whole thing and imagining Mm -hmm. that. um, And that's maybe one of the biggest sources of sort of modern folklore, I would think, around some of this. Um, Do you uh, relax watching a movie like Dune?
1: (laughs) Um, No, (laughs) I really don't. It feels like work. Um, (laughs) There are. A few sci-fi franchises that I can that I do really enjoy. I love Stargate, um, and and I when I dig down deep into understanding why, I think the reason is that it, until the later seasons, they aren't in spaceships. They they manage to make a a show where they travel to different planets in every, pretty much every episode without getting on a spaceship. You just have to walk through this ancient technological ring that aliens built and then you're suddenly on another planet and I I, what I realized in doing that self-reflection was that the thing that stresses me out the most is seeing a space in ship no seeing a ship in space (laughs) yes (laughs) Um, because they usually get stuff so wrong
0: that's what and I as think a would,
1: scientist yeah. and a science communicator it just really grinds my gears <laughs> and I feel like I'm always on edge so um <laughs> my my college roommate's family still calls gravity the the movie that moya ruined um, <laughs> i i tried to watch don't look up last weekend and I think I got 30 minutes into the two and a half hour long movie and I could feel my heart race my my heart rate just racing. Um, so yeah, no, it, it's not very relaxing.
0: Yes. Yeah, I could see that. I understand uh, that as uh, someone tuned into all the things, you'd be just completely taken out of it. And there is always mm-hmm. a little bit of a, uh, if you can accept one little magical element, hopefully you get the rest of the science uh, oh, yeah. right. Like the yeah, Stargate if- is, okay, all right, mm-hmm. I'll accept that. But then you have to be follow through on the logic uh, from there.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and if it if it's obviously so not scientifically accurate, then I don't really mind it. Like Galaxy Quest or Futurama. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I love watching those. I think what really <laughs> bothers me is is when I feel like people might take a, an incorrect lesson away from a piece of science fiction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, uh, Dune is kind of unwatchable. At least mm-hmm. the original one. Um, but but even the I just, I don't care for that much sand. It's just too much sand. It's the same with Tatooine. I love Boba (laughs) Fett, but if we have another thing set on this planet, I mean, it's a rich universe that they've Mm -hmm. said, a galaxy that's out there. Take us to a jungle planet. Take us to anything else. Um, Mm -hmm. Not the lava one, because that one gives, that's also problematic. Uh, (laughs) But And I was watching the Raised by Wolves thing the other day, and they say, well, this is an acid ocean. Well okay, what are the gases mm. being given off by this enormous acid ocean? How can anyone mm-hmm. breathe by it? Yeah, thinking the same kind of thing. Or like you said, when people are on the spaceships, uh, okay, now some people invent gravity boots, but mm-hmm. then it doesn't affect the hair <laughs> <laughs> or yes. it does. I mean what's the what's the deal there? Is it create a little field around you that your hair stays perfect? And mm. is are robes really the right choice for Jedi when you're flying around? In zero gravity. Come on.
1: Uh, It would just be floating. Do you really want to see all those actors from the 70s in, like, leotards and (laughs) and onesies?
0: I mean, are you asking me honestly?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Always. I mean, if it was David Bowie in in his labyrinth outfit, then yes, I will take that.
0: Well, I think Buck Rogers did a pretty good job. They kept those folks in onesies. Some of them very (laughs) shiny. Ooh. it was exciting uh, and uh, I also enjoyed the foundation where they had to come up with mm-hmm. a language which I think was French-Canadian <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yes, I, I love a good constructed language in fiction yeah. um, there there are some really creative ways that you can take existing languages here on earth and manipulate them or come up with one of your own and I think it's a really beautiful practice um, I interviewed a conlinger on Exolore and uh, it was a lot of fun
0: yeah <laughs> Do you have a language you learned or tried to learn? uh
1: I have tried to make my own fictional languages like back when I was in middle school or high school and they are terrible. I am deeply ashamed <laughs> of them when I look back now <laughs> um, but i I will leave that to the to the conlinging experts.
0: <laughs> well and uh, uh, as we near the end of our time just in this session, hopefully not anything else, but uh, <laughs> uh is it possible that in thinking through world building, um, one must consider that the planet is a very active participant. And mm. um, like even beyond the idea that everything is connected, and I love a mycelium network, uh, <laughs> please, I, I enjoy it so much. But uh, what about the Earth itself? I mean, are we not part of a system, and, and if that system is out of balance, might the Earth itself enact something? Mm. Let's say a plague let's say, a a volcano? Or if population gets out of whack, you you know, can we think that way?
1: Mm, Yeah, I always start my world building process um, when I'm like building the actual world with the environment, because everything, everything starts there. Uh, The the life that forms on a planet is going to be influenced by the conditions, the physical environment. Um, The culture that you develop is also going to be a reflection of the physical environment. So yeah, I love thinking of worlds of planets as characters in their own story, but not necessarily as conscious agents. Mm -hmm. Um, They, and I think it's really beautiful to think of, of a character that has a, A lot of say in a story but isn't consciously acting um, isn't trying to manipulate anything to its whim just like reacting and that's that's what the earth does it reacts to to different physical processes that we do that are happening in its core that are happening out in space you know our our Planet is gaining weight. Uh, we're losing mass from our atmosphere, uh, but we're also gaining mass as cosmic dust settles on the planet. Um, so we are changing all the time, and we're we yeah we're in flux, and it's cool.
0: It's very cool, and I like thinking about that. I suppose I referenced mushrooms, but probably. We owe a lot to to mushrooms and what they 're doing and whether they're acting on their own behalf or or mm-hmm. or just because that 's what they do. It seems to me there is some kind of uh self interest uh, <laughs> there and and anything we talk a lot about sustaining life, creating life, but you mm. have to think about the end of it too, and what mm. happens to that because that's uh you know that's an essential part of this you've got to deal with mm-hmm whether that's burial or, or what, uh, mm-hmm.
1: unless, unless you're on the immortal world,
0: unless the immortal world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I, the more I think about it, the more problems it
1: <laughs> yes.
0: presents, because that means not just the good folks with good ideas
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> are going to live mm-hmm. forever.
0: And some people you think, well, maybe I can wait this out, but <laughs> anyway, well, do you think, um, I'm now I'm nervous about cosmic dust, but that's fine. Um, Uh, Do you think that after this pandemic, uh, that there's something that will change culturally after losing, as of right now, six million lives to this Mm -hmm. pandemic? Or is that, in the grand scheme of things, really not that big of a deal if you have 140 million people being born every year?
1: Right. Well, I mean, objectively speaking, in the grand scheme of things, none of us matter. (laughs)
0: Um, yeah there we go (laughs) six
1: million a hundred billion like we we are tiny insignificant specks of dust compared to everything else that exists in the universe but um it is really important to us like these numbers take a toll on us personally and unfortunately I, i don't think much is going to change i think that uh we as humans are some of us are recognizing the immense loss that this pandemic has caused but i i think that we are coping with it by just not dealing with it we're we're just ignoring it we are sweeping it under the rug uh, and i don't think that we're actually going to learn that much at the end of this
0: sadly probably true and some uh, dangerous myths i think growing up around it at the same time that we'll have to see what uh, happens as as the years go on but Mm -hmm. um gosh it's so much <laughs> so much so you see well, i wanted to have you on <laughs> I, I i would love to just uh pour ourselves a, a glass of cosmic whiskey and get oh. into it you know just forever it's so great um but i know you have other minds to reach and worlds to build
1: uh well i'm i'm i can stick around for for another 15 <laughs> minutes <if> you... <laughs> we can chug our cosmic whiskey <laughs>
0: Well, then I'll ask you this question: Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What happened before the Big Bang?
1: Ooh, (laughs) one of one of the greatest questions. Um, There is one theory. About How the universe will end one hypothesis called the big bounce hypothesis uh-huh. and it says that the universe will continue to expand as it is right now until the force of gravity stops it and then like a, a, a balloon expanding until it reaches its limit it will then contract uh, when it does that. The, the Earth will sh- or the, the universe will shrink. it will get denser and hotter until eventually it contracts down to an infinitesimally small point. And that will resemble a lot uh, what, what the universe looked like at the time of the Big Bang. And then all of that energy that was contracted will need somewhere to go. so it will expand again and there will be another big Bang. So in the Big Bounce hypothesis, the universe is in this constant cycle of expanding and contracting. Um, Now, I've just told you that. You might think it's very cool, scientists think that that's probably not likely. (laughs) We think that dark energy is stronger than the force of gravity, so it will continue to expand. But we aren't sure. We don't know what dark energy is. We don't know how it acts on long size or time scales. Uh, We still have a lot more to learn about it. So it's possible that before the Big Bang, there was just another universe that started with its own Big Bang.
0: That's what seems to make the most sense to me. I mean, mm. c- because there's so little in this, uh, and maybe this is s- simple-minded, but <laughs> there's so little in this world that is just nothing, that mm. is just the absence of something completely, and uh, that is so hard to uh, even contemplate, um, even on an ancient scale, a beyond ancient scale. It it's hard to think that there was just. Mm, nothing and then boom <laughs> there's something it seems more likely that it's cyclical or that it mm-hmm. would come around again or that it would just keep growing but
1: right. uh, I... yeah there there are all kinds of hypotheses out there all of them need more data uh none of them are are set in stone but you can i know that i've heard people hypothesize that maybe uh black holes each cause their own little big bang in a different universe mm-hmm. or um supernovae or or whatever um we really don't know <laughs> we are grasping at straws here but in you know a, a super rigorous scientific way yeah, yeah, of, course, of <laughs> we're, course. we're doing calculations to figure out the probability of the straw distribution so that we know where we should reach out our hand blindly into the darkness <laughs>
0: <laughs> well is there a, an exoplanet a situation where you think you would thrive?
1: Me, personally? Yeah, like uh, if you
0: had to be the one that was out there and you had <laughs> to start things up, your own uh, Big Bang, culturally speaking, uh, Ooh. Uh, w- what What would it look like?
1: Yeah, if I could build my own everything from scratch. um, You know, I actually, I actually did build a world that is kind of similar to this on Exolore. It was called the World of Freedom. And the condition that we had was imagine earth but just real big so if a planet like Earth was one and a half times the size so that all of the continents were really far away and you couldn't travel between them, then something like the Atlantic slave trade would not have happened until technology and culture evolved to the point where you actually can cross those vast differences. And by the time that happens, everyone's more mature, they know how to protect themselves, they've probably reckoned with a lot of the the prejudices and deep-seated issues that they have. Um, It's a world where curiosity is is great and learning is encouraged, and I think that's the type of world I would thrive on, a world of learning and empathy and curiosity.
0: It's beautiful. Mm, Thank you. (laughs) That's what I wished for, too. (laughs) Uh, And uh, in in ways in which we can materialize that here, um, Mm -hmm. uh, by gosh, I'll commit to that myself. (laughs) But um, it's short of finding a very large planet (laughs) where we can restart or even get to. Um, That's a a wonderful idea. Yeah, I like that. I think
1: one way we can start is by just remembering that we are on a planet. Um, So one thing that I really tried to do with my book, The The Milky Way, is expand people's perspective. And um, when astronauts travel to space and they look back at earth they experience this phenomenon called the overview effect and when you can see the entire planet through a single window of a space station you see all of the human or half half of the humans who exist you see uh, no borders you can't see those from space everything on earth that when you're here seems really big and important from space it just doesn't matter And I really wanted to give people that perspective for my book, which is why I wrote it from the point of view of the Milky Way galaxy, this literally larger than life figure who has this perspective, who is just so angry at humans that we don't have this perspective too. And it's just trying to force that to us. Um, I think that's one way that we can get closer to this world of freedom by remembering that uh, you're not, you're not. A uh, Pennsylvanian, you're not an American, like you're a human, as cheesy as that sounds. Uh, but as we discussed, cheese leads to love, it, which keeps the world that's going right. around. The girl you
0: so, are onto something, aren't they? So, <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I think hopefully we can make a, a world that looks a bit more like the world of freedom, yeah. even if we can't artificially grow our Earth.
0: <laughs> right. And uh, would you want to go to space?
1: no yeah <laughs> uh too dangerous. i will go to space too right yeah exactly yeah. it's too dangerous i will go to space when it is as safe and as regular and common as flying in an airplane <laughs> that's my limit
0: here here i, I, I am <laughs> with you uh, well uh, uh dr mcteer this has been so delightful uh I, i'm just my mind is expanding <laughs> into internal new earths that i can inhabit <laughs> it's really fantastic um the book uh, is out everywhere people can get it, that uh,
1: you can pre-order, pre-order it now it's actually not coming out until august okay. uh, august 16th 2022 but you can pre-order it now um it is the the pinned tweet on my twitter profile
0: uh, which is uh,
1: which is go Astro Mo. Um, (laughs) It's the easiest way to say it. I'm not going to direct you to this like long URL, you know, (laughs) that's right.
0: That's right. And the podcast is ongoing. Uh, Exo yes. lore people can tune into that and i gather you have many other things uh, percolating out there mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. in the cosmic stew uh so that's great <laughs> um well uh thank you and if you ever need a little mystic to come in and do some world building i'm available mm-hmm.
1: okay i will keep that in mind dale we can build a turtleneck world oh,
0: can you no necks will be cold no in this world cold necks on a <laughs> planet turtleneck All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here. Till next time. Thanks. Yeah,
1: thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I don't want to go there. I like thinking about space. And I guess not every absence needs to be filled. Sometimes we can be like a shepherd moon establishing an empty path. Necessary voids are important. And I hope you're able to find ways to honor the necessary voids in your life this week. My thanks to Moya for being with me. I can't wait to read that book. Imagination. Cultivate it. Stay curious. But it's a good idea to ask what's in the gummies before uh, putting it in your mouth at a party, especially one where you know someone is going to end up in a loincloth before the night is over. Friends, that's all for us this week. Till next time, remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. I can rock it Deep Night with Dale is independently produced, written, and performed by James Bewley. Season 14 artwork by M.K. Cummins. Season 14 theme features lyrics and vocals by Kylie Lotz, music by Austin Lotz, and mixing by Zach Robbins. It's never too late to give Dale a positive review while hitting subscribe on Apple Podcasts. But you can also tune in to Dale's Frequency on Stitcher, Podchaser, SoundCloud, and Spotify, wherever you are. Dale's right there with you. To get in touch with mindfulness tips, positive reinforcement, or just to say hello, email Dale directly at DaleRadioGmail.com. Be sure to follow him on Instagram by looking up at Dale Seaver. From our being to yours, thank you for visiting The Deep Night.